I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wiradjuri Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It requires some gymnastics uh, mentally and some crystal ball gazing, but I find it really exciting to do it. I'd be quite happy to do nothing but traditional method for the rest of my days, but the Australian wine industry doesn't work like that. I've still got to make Cabernet. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Drew Tuckwell has been making exceptional wine for over 30 years. Perhaps best known for his meticulous skills in sparkling winemaking, he is also someone who just gets on with it. From the beautiful views at Perinthi Winery, Drew is here to tell me more about his adventures with the grape. Hi, Drew. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. Absolute pleasure to be with you. It's always a, a total thrill to hear about what you've been up to. But I first want to go back a little bit into where did you grow up and when do you first remember taking notice of wine? Oh, I'm a Sydney suburban boy. Um, just, you know, grew up in the suburbs, uh, fairly, you know, regular suburban uh, upbringing, absolutely no connection to agriculture whatsoever. <laughs> so, uh, considering where I've ended up, um, yeah, uh, kind of kind of out of the box, but hey, you follow where life takes you. Um, but I, I originally, out of school, did a... Um, did a communications degree uh, and started my working life as a um, uh, as a graphic designer. Um, and you know, basically, just I, I in in my time in in public relations and doing graphic design at public relations um, companies, uh, we had a few wine clients, uh, so there was a bit of a connection there. But my parents were. Uh, part of the 1960s um, drinking uh, metamorphosis of in Australian culture. So, you know, they started drinking table wine when that started to come to the fore and Australian wine consumers started ditching sherry and port. Uh, and, you know, so when I was growing in my teenage years in the 1980s, there was often wine at the table, um, you know, nothing particularly spectacular or anything, but they enjoy um, a good glass of wine. So, you know, I got introduced to it reasonably young. You had a bit of a sip. You acquired a bit of a taste. Uh, so that by the time I got to my early 20s, I sort of went through the beer and Bundy stage fairly quickly and came out the other side with an interest in wine and then found wine magazines more interesting than graphic design magazines and that was a bit of a pointer. <laughs> I can completely concur with you on that. I studied dance and I knew I should be reading about the Martha Graham technique, but I was just getting decanter and flicking through that and spending hours doing that. So I, I 100% understand that. When did you decide, was there a moment where you thought, okay, I need to go and study or did you have experience in the industry first? Uh, yeah, no, I'm I, having already been to university. Uh, I thought I better check out this uh, this gig out before I commit to uh, another university degree. Um, so I had a bit of a midlife crisis oh, at about 23. <laughs> um, and 
kept hearing myself say, oh, one day when I make some money, which was never guaranteed to happen anyway, not, not necessarily in excess of money, uh, I'll, I'll buy a vineyard or something. And then I thought, why am I going to wait till I'm 40-something? I'm 23. I'll, I'll go and check it out now. So very fortunately, I went to a broken wood dinner in Sydney uh, that must have been about 1992, uh, and Ian Riggs was there. And you know, when you when you're 23, you got a bit of gumption about you know. I went to this dinner, and I think it was only it must have been just after harvest for him in in 1992. Um, so you know, April or May or something. And anyway, at the end of the dinner, I went up and had a chat to him. And said, "Oh, I'm I'm going to start. You know, I'm thinking of starting the Charles Sturt University course by distance education. I want to come and check out what it's like to work in a winery. Can I come next vintage? I mean, he didn't know me from a bar of soap. But he said, "Oh, well, you're the first to ask. So yeah, you can come." <laughs> um, and that's that's how I landed my first job. Wow! And at Broken Wood of all places, and with Rigsy. Yeah, yeah, oh, and I was completely naive to the fact of where I was going and who I was going to work with. I just liked the wines. <laughs> I, th- I thought they were good. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Little did I know that it was, you know, um, during that period it became known as, you know, like one of the great, you know, practical winemaking universities and, and I did get quite the education, I can tell you. What what was that kind of what was that like? Did were you kind of thinking, God, I'm out of my depth? Were you drinking wines during, you know, the lunch times and seeing, you know, the world of wine? What what was that kind of eye opening experience like? Um, oh, I was way out of my depth. I didn't know the front end of, from the arse end of a pump. Um, so I I just well, I mean they knew I was a novice and I was coming in not knowing a lot but yeah basically you got up in the morning early and you started and you went to bed when Riggsy told you that's enough for today off you go um, and you know you never knew exactly when that was going to be I was living on site so that was pretty handy um, and yeah lunch times were the education there was there was always wine and um, you know sometimes it was just you know, regular stuff and other times it was First Growth Bordeaux and Grand Cru Burgundy. So um, certainly I saw wines that I never would have otherwise seen at that stage of my career and I also got to taste with people that knew a hell of a lot more about it than I did. So, um, and look, the ethos that I think almost everybody that's ever worked at Brokenwood um, comes out with that, mentoring mentality and that sharing mentality so that, um, you know, it's just not about getting a pound of flesh out of you during the harvest. It's about it being an educational experience uh, that, that you carry with you and also hopefully you pass on to others. And I've, I've tried to do that since. It's others to judge whether I've done that successfully or not. I think that's awesome. And, and oh, yeah, I mean, you were kind of set up for success in that way. But then you, of course, then decided to go back to university, another degree, another set of 
uh, hex bills that you'd have to pay back. Tell me a little bit about how, how, you know, that course was and then your entrance into the Universal Wine Bar of SA. Ah, uh, well, I'm old enough to be fortunate enough that my first degree came free. <laughs> so, uh, it wasn't another set of hex bills. I, I got off lightly there and back when I finished uh, Onology at Adelaide University, um, I think the total bill was only about 10000 so I think that probably only gets you through maybe a couple of semesters these days. Um, so I did start at Charles Sturt um, doing distance education and that was before podcast lectures or even emails. If you had a question, you, you, you rang your lecturer on a landline, left a message and hopefully sometime before the exam they get back to you. Um, so I bumbled through that rather badly for a couple of years when I was doing vintages and going overseas and whatnot. Uh, and then eventually I was overseas and doing another vintage in Italy and I decided, if, well, you know, and I'd gone over there with the idea of, no, I'm going, I'm going to go for like years, get a full-time job um, and, you know, come back and, you know, maybe I don't have to go to uni because I'm going to learn a lot on the job. Um, but I got over there and sort of settled into it all and I then thought, you know, if I'm going to really make a career out of this, I, I better actually go and learn what I'm meant to be doing. Um, so I, I, I packed up my bags and came back and, and um, didn't go to Wagga, nothing against Wagga, but it's not exactly the epicentre of the wine universe. Um, so I went to Adelaide because having been to uni before, I knew that you learnt more, more just as much outside the lecture theatre as you do in the lecture theatre. And Adelaide is the epicentre of the Australian wine universe. Uh, so it just made logical sense. And, you know, I was a bit older and wiser, I suppose. So I worked in a bit of wine retail and hospitality and then landed a job at the Universal Wine Bar, um, which in its heyday was just the place to drink wine and the wine list was wonderful and it was owned by Michael Hill Smith who was an MW who was an incredibly generous not only with um, wines that he would sometimes share with you but just with his knowledge. Um, so that in itself was an education. Um, uh, it was a, a, a fun place to work, a crazy place to work um, but, geez, I drank well um, or, or tasted well. And certainly when you're a student, I tasted far better than I could ever afford. Um, so, you know, it, it's just all that absorption of knowledge, whether you're conscious of it or not, that just builds all the foundations for your career, I suppose. But, yeah, that was that was a real golden period um, in terms of, of wine knowledge and it led to, fortunately, um, negotiance. Australia started the Working With Wine Fellowship during my time there and uh, the first year Sophie Otten won, won the fellowship and she was working at the Universal Wine Bar at the time and the second year I was fortunate enough to win it um, and boy, what a, what a prize that was with uh, um, 
visits to uh, Krug and tastings with uh, the now now late Henri Krug uh, and visits to DRC to taste everything out of barrel and Gigal and, uh, God, where else did we go? Antonori and Isole Olina. Um, you know, it's just like... You can, you can have all the money in the world that you want, but that's not necessarily going to open the door to DRC, for instance. It's the connections. So um, how, how do you place a, a, um, a value on that? You can't because, you know, you can be rich, but if you don't have the letter of introduction, you're never getting it in. Um, so, yeah, three, three weeks of fabulousness that was, I can tell you. My God, that's the biggest flex I've ever heard. <laughs> but if I had visited those places, I would have a T-shirt made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, uh, and I don't, I don't downplay the privilege uh, of having that opportunity at all. Um, it's, it's once in a lifetime if you're lucky enough, and I just happen to be lucky enough, I suppose. Um, and, you know, again, it's just one of those massive building blocks of the foundation. And it's like it's like the Len Evans tutorial that I had the good fortune to go to. For, when was that? 2008. God, that's like 15 years ago. Um, you know, again, um, you can... If you got stacks of money, you could probably afford to go out and buy all those wines if you wanted to. Um, but to have them all within a week and within that context of education and um, peer assessment, not peer assessment of yourself, but being able to taste those wines with other people that have good and great palates, um, so that it's just not a tasting experience, but every wine is like a learning experience. I mean, geez, you, you know, you can't buy that either. Um, and and this is this is you know that's that's two very generous programs with because I think working with wine is still going. Uh, two very generous programs within the Australian wine industry that as a wine industry participant cost me nothing except time and effort um, that is still available out there. The Len Evans tutorial is still going after 20 years. Uh, I think I think negotiations might be doing working with wine every second year. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, my advice is to anyone, um, you know, in the, in the sector, go and chase those and chase them hard because, again, you know, I'll never have a week like Len Evans ever again, you know. So, you know, they're, they're really fundamental to, to your palate, who you are, how you think uh, and how you pursue your career, I suppose. It's so very true, Drew. And um, I think the, the Working With Wine Fellowship from Negotiants is back in 2024. But um, I, I agree with you. There's, you know, there's something to be said for, drinking, hearing about the wine, hearing about its history, having people around to tell you what was happening in the world at the time, and then drinking them with people that get shivers up and down their spines just like you do. And I think that, um, 
yeah, this it, it's, but you have to be in, in it to win it. And if you're if you're not putting yourself into those uh, scholarships and programs, then then yeah, you won't have the opportunity. But you also learn. Like often they'll ask you, you know, what you want in five years, and and it's not until some of those uh, entrances for and 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 programs or, or letters that you need to write that you often ask yourself really what what it is you want and what you're looking for and how you're going to get there. So it's a great exercise whether you even you know, end up coming out on top and winning, winning them, or if not, it's still a great exercise to do, I think. Oh, absolutely. Oh, look, it took me five applications to the Len Evans tutorial and, you know, I knew the guy who was running it. <laughs> I'd worked for him. <laughs> so, you know, um, persistence counts for something. Um, you know, if at first you don't succeed, keep trying. Uh, it, it's too good an opportunity not to persist for. Yeah, I totally agree with you at that. And I'm so glad that you shared uh, those experiences because, I mean, my next question was going to be, you know, where does your love of sparkling wine come from? But you did mention you went to Krug, so I think maybe I might have a little hint into to where that came from. But let's talk a little bit about sparkling wine. I don't think we have talked about traditional method that much on on the podcast before. So tell me about, first of all, your vast experience with Perinthi and how that came about. Um, it, it, was a bit, it was a bit by accident. So love of sparkling wine, um, of, of course, um, visiting Krug is going to um, shift the dial somewhat. Um, but working at the Universal Wine Bar where there was always a champagne and always an Australian sparkling on the list. So you saw um, a fairly amazing depth and breadth of the category just by, you know, making sure bottles weren't corked and whatnot. Um, and then when I was working pre, uh, pre-Printhy, um, I started. A t- I was in Mudgee at the time, and I, was, I started a tasting group, and and you know registered with quite a few importers like Sellerhand and Bendham and what have you. Uh, and I do recall going to a tasting in Sid- Sydney. It just happened to coincide with one of my journeys to Sydney that Bendham put on, and. I can still remember it. It was the first time I ever tasted Le Mandier Bernier uh, from Champagne. And I just went, oh, fuck, right. This is what good sparkling <laughs> is about. It changed my mindset completely about what, um, what sparkling wine could be. I mean, because admittedly, back in the universal days, most of the champagnes on the list were fairly well-known big houses. And this was my first introduction to, you know, grow a champagne and a different dimension to what champagne could be. So I then became, um, back when it was far more affordable than it is now, uh, quite an avid um, purchaser of things like Le Mandier Bernier, Agripar, Egli Auray, and started really delving into that um, other side 
um, that grower side of champagne that was really starting to emerge there and was utterly fascinated. But in a winemaking position that I was never making sparkling wine. So then I came to Prenthe in uh, 2007, you know, did a couple of, we had a couple of vintages under our belt and uh, Dave Swift um, kept, you know, talking about, you know, orange should be a really good sparkling wine region and we should have a go. And anyway, so that conversation bounced around the office for quite a while till in 2010 uh, we decided to have a go. Um, so I naively made um, um, base wines in the 2010 vintage and and the Swift range was always meant to be a premium range. We, we started with the intention of, of making three wines from the get-go, so a, a vintage Blanc de Blanc, a, a vintage blend and a non-vintage blend um, and in fairly small quantities. Um, and then in, I, I did say to the Swift family, well, I actually really haven't done a lot of sparkling wine production. You'd better send me to Champagne. So fortunately they did. <laughs> crafty, very crafty. Yeah, well, you know, you got to play the system, haven't you? Um, so later that year, 2010 vintage, I went to Champagne and I did what I call an observation vintage. So rather than going to one producer and just filling up presses and dragging around hoses. Um, I, I made contact through a lot of the importers um, with the producers over there, people like Agripar, um, uh, Rudolf Peters, Pierre Peters, Jacqueson, um, and basically I, I made contact with them all um, I said, look, I'm a winemaker. I know you're in vintage. I know you're busy. But, I, you know, if I can just follow you around and, and take some photos and ask you some questions while we're on the move. And they were incredibly generous. So um, what I did is I went to a different producer literally every day. Um, and then, you know, after the first week and I got taken through vineyards and the harvesting and loaded a few presses and, and had a few lunches and what have you, then I'd go back around the same circuit the next week and see those same batches under ferment and then go back around the next week and see them after ferment type thing. So um, every day I literally had to sit down at the end of the day and put it all on paper and bash it out on the keyboard because I literally – my, my brain was going to explode. I was taking on so much information that um, – that I had to sort of like download so that I had the mental capacity to do it all again tomorrow. I mean, the, the, it was very much a – I wanted to go there so I wasn't reinventing the wheel. Um, and, you know, that paid spades, I think, just getting people's different perspectives, how they treat their grapes, what the grapes look like, what the juice looks like, what the ferment looks like, what the newly fermented wine looks like in so many different places and whether it was Pinot or whether it was Chardonnay or Meunier, um, just to see the diversity um, and the different approaches um, and, you know, it, it was all – it was that same ethos of, you know, you, you 
have to use the terroir of every block and you have to make great wine from every block and then put bubbles in it. Um, you know, and it helps when you go to such great producers. Um, so you're basically learning good things. Um, so that, that again, that, that, that I was there for two and a half, maybe I think I was away three weeks, including travel time for that. Um, that again, you know, that, that's like, you know, um, working with wine and Len Evans is that, you know, that was, that was just such a seminal, um, period to learn and create the foundation of what Swift Sparkling came to be was that, that 2010 vintage and the people I met and their generosity and what I learned from them was, was quite incredible. So, you know, then it's just been a process of, um, uh, of gradually, you know, step by step, uh, constant evolution, tinkering, um, you know, I've, I've since sent samples back to, to some of those people in Champagne for them to give me an honest opinion. Um, I've been back to Champagne a couple of times um, and, and caught up with them. Um, nothing like those three weeks again, but to, to drag some bottles over there and taste them and they give me honest feedback. Um, and, you know, you just, you just keep exploring without making dramatic changes, I suppose. Um, and, you know, you've, what are we up to now? Um, 13, 14 years later, you, you arrive at where you are, um, but we're still only releasing wines from halfway through that journey. So um, it's, a, it's a long game. It certainly is a long game when it comes to traditional methods sparkling. We haven't talked that much about that. So I want to ask um, a little bit about the process. But in saying that, Swift Sparkling has been awarded Best New South Wales Sparkling in 2018, 2019, 2020, 21, 22, 23, need I go on? It is also been announced as um, the whole range going into Tyson Sells's Sparkling Hall of Fame as the best sparkling wine brand in New South Wales. It's done exceptionally well. And the freshness of the wines that we see of, of some of your back releases are just astounding. Um, so talk us through a little bit about traditional method, why it is worth the time, effort and immense patience that goes hand in hand with it. Um. Oh, it, it it's a very challenging style to make in that it is uh, very transparent. Uh, if if you bugger it up, um, people are going to see that you buggered it up. <laughs> so uh, you know, and whilst you have um, you know the final chance to maybe uh, smooth over some parts of it with a bit of a sugar add at disgorgement. Um, sugar can only do too, so much. And if you're going to be true to your style, um, you know, if you start adding a lot of sugar, you start ruining your style. So I don't really see that as a backstop um, um, saviour in the arsenal. You, you've, you've got to do it right from the very first step. And, and the very first step is the vineyard. So um, we have traditionally taken 
um, all our sparkling from from one particular vineyard to the in the southeast corner uh, of the Orange region uh, that we now uh, lease and manage ourselves because it you know is fairly crucial to our to our grape supply and and quality. Um, and now because of, you know, there's only so much fruit that vineyard can supply and we take a few little um, a few little parcels from other high elevation vineyards. Um, and look, they're good, but every year that original vineyard keeps floating to the top. Um, there's something about it. We very deliberately approach that grower um, back in the beginning saying, you know, you are the, the coolest vineyard that we know of coolest in terms of temperature that we know of in the region we'd like to make sparkling wine from from your vineyard um and you know there's there is something about that vineyard that that's the you know um much abused term that is the terroir of of that um uh, of that vineyard and whilst in a volume sense that fruit can be replaced the style and character of that fruit doesn't have a replacement um it, it's a cornerstone of what swift sparkling is so it's um you know it, it's great that we're now leasing and managing that ourselves um it gives us access to a bit more fruit off that vineyard um, and, you know, we, we dictate the quality of it. So, you know, and it's, you know, so you, traditional methods, sparkling wine, you know, um, at least in the orange sense, I, you know, the orange region starts at 600 metres, the highest vineyards are about 1,100 metres. You know, unless you're around about the 1,000 metre mark with your vineyard, I I think you'll be pushing it. I wouldn't want to make it off 600 metres. Um, I w- wouldn't get the style or the quality. So, um, you know, in terms of its comparison with other regions, you know, we start where the Adelaide Hills tops out. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's any vineyards at 600 metres in the Adelaide Hills, um, but they have different climatic conditions as well. Um, Tasmania is basically, you know, fairly much sea level. So what we lack in latitude, we make up for in altitude. So all of our sparkling fruit comes off a 1,000 metres or more. Um, And, you know, that sort of equates in terms of harvesting and and, um, uh, the progression of the growing season is quite similar to, um, you know, sea level Tasmania. So um, that that dictates the style and the character of of the wines. Um, and then in terms of winemaking, look, it's all um, hand harvested, whole bunch pressed. Um, the I do do a bit of barrel ferment, but it's not it's it's not by any means um, crucial to the style. Most of it is tank fermented. Most of it doesn't go through malo because with warming um, climate change vintages like 2024 will be, um, it's about acid preservation um, rather than than dropping the acid. I want to keep all the acid and that's where the freshness comes from. Um, 
So there's a bit of small barrel, as in 300-litre, 500-litre barrels. Uh, We're starting to move into using 3,500-litre fooders, which I'm really quite excited about. I've done one trial batch, and that was very promising. Um, So there's a range of fermentation vessels. Um, Basically, we're we're talking about five-tonne lots, um, that's about two and a half thousand litres. So we end up with all sorts of parcels for um, for Pinot and for Chardonnay and Mounier when we have access to it. Uh, that um, you know just gives us a whole range of different styles, um, textures, flavours, uh, acid balance. Uh, to make your blends because every wine needs, you know, there's now six wines in the range. Uh, every wine needs its own personality. If, if, if all we were doing was, you know, similar tasting wines that you just whacked a different label on, that's a bit disingenuous. Uh, they've got to have their own personalities and they've got to have their own reason for being. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of scope and a lot of fun um, in doing traditional method sparkling. And then, you know, you, you get to um, tirage and tirage ageing. Um, we are in the very fortunate position that um, basically when we first started disgorging and selling these wines, we're actually quite crap at it, I think. So they weren't selling very fast. So the Lee's ageing sort of blew out really nicely. <laughs> And, and the thing about Lee's ageing is there's nothing you can do to replace that. You just need time. You know, you can't, you can't really accelerate that process to get that texture, weight and depth of flavour um, that it gives you and the freshness that it allows you to hold on to. I mean, you, you we're, we've just disgorged the 2012 Blanc de Blanc for the first time. Now, show me your 2012 any white wine that looks as fresh as sparkling wine can look that's been sitting in a bottle for 12 years on secondary fermentation leaves. I mean, it's just extraordinary. But a lot of that comes back to the vineyard sauce and the acid and all that sort of stuff. And you've got to have good fruit flavour. I mean, that's the amazing thing um, uh, that, you know, when you have the right vineyard, the aroma and flavour of fruit that you can have at, 11 Bome is quite extraordinary, um, whereas at, in, in warmer vineyards and you're trying to do traditional method, you know, y- your sugar is usually well ahead of your phenolic ripeness, so you're sort of lacking a bit for aroma and flavour. Um, so, if you, you know, if you, get, if you get the right site, you can do it, and if you've got the time, you can do it. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of components. And then, you know, with disgorging, we make all our own. We don't – it's the only process we don't undertake on site um, because you need to be a fitter and turner, and I'm not, uh, and you need a lot of equipment that's really expensive that you use for a couple of days a year. So I'd rather – we'd rather pay someone who does it day in, day out and does it right. Uh, but we make all our own liqueurs um, and every disgorgement of every wine gets bench trialled, gets its own liqueur. Um, so that is, a, you know, and there's lots of stuff you can put into that as well. Um, everything, I've put everything from topaque 
um, brandy spirit, barrel fermented Chardonnay, you know, Pinot red wine for rosé. Um, I've got a Solera tank that I started in 2010 um, that is there as a, as a non-vintage ongoing Solera that can be used. Um, there's lots of variables and, again, if you have the fruit expression, the depth and the complexity and the textural complexity, then you don't need a lot of sugar. So whilst all the wines are labelled as brut, um, they are all technically extra brut, which is less than six grams a litre. Um, so, you know, it's um, – you know, it, it's a many-faceted thing. It's You can go deep into it. Um, it's not a particularly simple process. You know, you get to fiddle with it, even at disgorging, just to get the balance right. Um, but you need a lot of crystal ball gazing as well because it's pretty hard to envisage uh, what this wine's going to look after 10 years of lees ageing when it's, uh, a very young and raw wine sitting in your tank before tirage bottling. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it requires some gymnastics uh, mentally and some crystal ball gazing, but I find it really exciting to do it. I'd be quite happy to do nothing but traditional method for the rest of my days, but the Australian wine industry doesn't work like that. I've still got to make Cabernet. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, you do need the foresight. I, I, it is a very specialised um, set of skills that you do have and you must also need a heck of a lot of enamel on your teeth because, I mean, looking at, you know, those high acid varieties out of tank, you know, and, and tasting them all, I just I can't imagine what your poor palate goes through. <laughs> uh, I don't have great teeth. <laughs> um, I, I, I do love, and it's probably conditioning, I do love acid in wines. Um, I love that freshness. But, yeah, it, you know, when you're doing bench trials, you can only do so much in a day. Um, but, yeah, I don't have great teeth. Um, the, in terms of the mindset, I, I can remember very early on I was at a tasting after I was uh, newly arrived in Orange and someone said to me, oh, are you going to make a sparkling wine out there? And that was before we'd even started the discussions of the origins of Swift. And uh, I can remember saying to that person, oh, I don't know. It requires a completely different mindset. Um, and I think it does. I think the two extremes of the of the wine-making spectrum, sparkling and fortified, do require a completely different mindset. Um, and I've, I've made a few fortified wines in my day and I'm quite honestly, they were crap. Um, so, you know, it's, um, you know, they are specialties um, and they do both require a completely different approach and mindset to your traditional table wine but there's always cross-fertilization things that you you bring into you know either sparkling wine from your table wine knowledge or vice versa so yeah it's um it, it's challenging but very rewarding when you when you get it right it certainly is and there's a reason that a lot of people 
uh, and particular winemakers uh, say if they're, you know, that champagne's on the top of their list. And by that, I mean champagne, I mean traditional method sparkling, Australian wines. It's constantly being a question that I ask people and I will ask you as well, but it's often the answer is that people want to drink these beautifully made bubbles and not just because they are a wine that you kind of toast in celebration. I think it is because the sheer complexity, the pleasure factor that goes into those wines um, and the way it makes you feel as well. Um, it's such, they are such special wines and, um, really something to behold and uh, they only continue to get better and better. So I'm really glad that you have that amazing set of skills. You also make fantastic still wine across the whole range of Perinthi um, and the best place to drink them is at the amazingly hatted restaurant by with the chef Jack Brown at Perinthi Dining. If you are out in Orange, it is sensational fine dining in the most beautiful spot that you can be. So if you are out Orange Way, please get to Perinthi Dining. But Drew, I want to know if you've only got three drinks that you can drink for the rest of your life, what are they and why? Uh, well, there's an obvious one. Um, champagne uh, and and I'd happily be um, things like Egliore or, or Agrippa or Le Mandier Bernier or... Pierre Peters or Pierre Jumonet. Um, there's a whole raft of really interesting wines. Um, some of them are becoming less and less affordable, unfortunately. Um, it's just the way it goes. That I suppose these these people are a very limited production, um, so there's limited availability and, you know, they can afford to put the price up. But... Value, you know, going off on a tangent, um, value value can be had at high prices. Um, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it isn't good value. And when you drink producers like that, you are getting something incredibly individual that no other producer in champagne can produce. Like, you know, Agripar can't do Egli or Ray and... Moet Shandong can do neither, um, you know. So um, they're they're fascinating and unique, and a real window into a a, a, world, a, world, a part of the world of wine. Um, and I just I have a great loving love of that um, of that style and those producers. Uh, so that that'd certainly be one. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, um, Barolo Barbaresco is my great red wine love. Um, I personally think that it's the greatest red wine on the planet. Um, I have literally given up buying Burgundy in favour of um, Barolo and Barbaresco, and I think they absolutely justify all the single vineyard bottlings that they're now doing. Um, they represent great value, especially when you compare it to single vineyard Premier Cru and Grand Cru Burgundies. The, you, you go to the top of the tree in Barola for half the price. Okay, it's still expensive, but, um, but the value and the comparative value is absolutely there. Um, and just 
endlessly fascinating. And these days you can drink them young or relatively young and get joy from them and, you know, you get a good vintage and they'll outlive you and me. Um, so incredibly versatile. Um, so it's um, – I, I get an immense amount of joy out of there. The other one is Australia – well, you know, if I can be broad enough to say modern Australian Chardonnay. Um, I think I think when it's done well, Australian Chardonnay is absolutely on par with even some of – the most respected producers in Burgundy in terms of making complex, interesting um, Chardonnays from single sites um, that uh, are intriguing young, uh, have the ability to uh, fill out and, and bloom with some bottle age. Um, and again, you know, you're not going to pick it – well, you can pick up some incredibly good modern Australian Chardonnay um, at Dan Murphy's for not a lot of money uh, when you think about stuff like, you know, the Wickham's Road stuff uh, that doesn't cost you a lot. Um, but again, you know, expensive Australian Chardonnay, for what, 80 to 100 bucks a bottle? Compare that to, you know, Premier Crew Burgundy. I know where the value comparison lies. Um, and you get no less a wine and no less intrigue and no less interest uh, and no less quality. Okay, uh, different, absolutely. And that's the same with uh, uh, Australian sparkling when you start talking about Arras and Deviation Road uh, and Chandon. Okay, um, they're, they're different because they're made in their region, but you put them up against, and you know, uh, uh, comparative champagnes for the same price and blind taste them, and you assess them on a quality. If this costs you 50 bucks or 80 bucks or 100 bucks, what is the best quality, the most interesting wine at that price point? Those Australian producers are going to be incredibly competitive against champagne for the same money. Like, you know, the the Swift Blanc de Blanc, for instance, is, you know, 11 years tirage bottling, uh, in tirage ageing in bottle, um, uh, and it's 150 bucks. Okay, that's expensive. But if you get that from champagne, it's going to cost you 450 bucks. Uh, and it's the same with, with top-shelf Australian Chardonnay. Um, you know, 80 bucks in Australia for, for the Australian and 250 for the uh, Premier Crew Burgundy. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's a no brainer, it's a no contest. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very true. We we are so lucky, and I, I'm time and time again reminded of that when I travel and I get out and I think. I, there's still so many wineries I don't know about, places I haven't visited, and I'm just always astounded by the quality of the wine in this country and beverages in general. But you said that very well, Drew. I knew the cu first couple. I didn't know about Chardonnay, but I definitely knew you were going to say Champagne and Barolo. So I think, you know, I, I do know you a little bit, but 
It's been such a pleasure getting to know more about you, hearing a little bit more about the kind of foundation stories. I've loved that. And I mean, just keep on keeping on because those wines that you make at Perinthi and under the Swift labels are stunning and I thoroughly enjoy them. So thank you for spending a bit of time with me today, Drew. Ah, absolute pleasure. More than happy to do it. Cheers to you. I hope that we'll get to cross paths soon. Uh, and and hopefully um, actually share a conversation over a glass of wine because we're remote and I've, I, I'm doing this over a glass of water and, frankly, you know, it's a bit of a letdown. It was meant to be a wine podcast over a, uh, you know, over a glass. And I've got a glass of water <laughs> and I was hoping for like a boozy lunch with, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always hoping for a boozy lunch. Let's make that happen in 2024. (laughs) Absolutely. I look forward to it. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.